There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you only look, then you will see On WCN-TV friends, and welcome back to another episode of WCN-TV. I am Rob Pugh, your host for today, and today is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. I invite you to check out our primary ministry website, which is wisconsinchristiannews.com, where you'll find actually literally thousands of great resources, radio, TV, articles, going back 22 years or so. And if you would, please share today's program with your friends on social media and by email. Uh, You can do that after the show by going to our dedicated TV website, which is WCNTV.net. Since we're banned on Facebook, I think it'd be great if you guys would help us out and uh, post for us there, if you're still using that platform. By the way, you can find our social media pages, our new ones, at uh, MeWe and Wimkin. Uh, if you'd like to try those out. And if you're watching live right now on WCNTV.net, you can also join the show and join the conversation. Just click on that red button that says join the studio audience, and then you can participate along with us, sort of like a call-in radio talk show. You can ask questions, make comments, share your insights, and speak to our guests, and I welcome you to do that. Today's guest is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author and president of AmeriSearch Incorporated, which is a publishing company dedicated to researching America's Nobel, noble heritage. Uh, he's one of the best teachers I've ever known and probably the smartest guy I've ever met. Most of us use about 10% of our brains, uh, but I think our guest today has probably forgotten more than I will ever know about anything. So you might want to take notes today. Um, because we're in for a very eye-opening program. Our special guest today is William J. Federer. You may have seen his American Minute on radio, uh, seen him in the media, and he's with us today to discuss a number of issues. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to get into things uh, related to the United Nations, but we're also going to be talking about um, the topic of socialism here in uh, early America and why the pilgrims rejected it. Um, as you can see, I'm wearing my Dr. Mike hat, uh, which came in the mail the other day. Pretty cool. The transforming word, Dr. Mike hat. I should have wore a pilgrim hat, 
since we're coming up on Thanksgiving, but um, this is the best I can do. So, Bill, welcome to the show. Rob, great to be with you. Thank you. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yes, yes, and I, I, I can't live up to your kind introduction, but uh, if, if the, the good Lord can use me, he can use anybody. Well, you wrote a book on this topic back in 2017. If we can uh, put that up on the screen there, it's called The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It, the prequel to America's Freedom. Um. I have not read this this particular one, but I have read many of your books. And, uh, you know, Bill's, Bill's work should be required reading in every public school um, and is absolutely in homeschools. So well, what I what I like doing with this book is giving the big picture, the global picture of what was going on at the time the pilgrims came over, what caused them to want to come over in the first place, and then what contributions they made that impacted our lives today. And uh, one of the things I'd like to do uh, from the start is to sort of debunk the 1619 project, this critical race theory that these Europeans were terrible and they destroyed a paradise of the new world. Well, pre-Columbus, you had in the Caribbean, nice, peaceful Indians called Arawaks, and then there were the Caribs. And these were tribes from South America that were going island to island, depopulating and eating the people on these different islands. On Columbus's first voyage, he met the Arawaks. They were peaceful. His second voyage, they find human bones cooking in pots and gnawed human bones. So certainly to those tribes that were being eaten, it was not some paradise that the Europeans disrupted. And you have the Aztecs pre-Columbus. The Aztecs were capturing neighboring tribes and taking thousands of their captives to the top of their pyramids and ripping their beating hearts out to the sun god and then letting their bodies roll down and the people would eat them. People thought, well, gee, Cortez's men, when they wrote these accounts down, they, they must have exaggerated. They made those up. Well, in 2015, they were doing construction on the foundation of a building in old downtown Mexico City. And sure enough, under the foundation, they found towers of skulls, entire amphitheaters of skulls, all neatly lined up and road put together in, in columns and roads and stacked exactly the way they were described by Cortez's men. And the BBC did a special on it. And they acknowledged that they were not all adult males. There were women and children, which means that they were ritual sacrifices to the Aztec gods. And, but you look in North America, the Cheyenne tribe got a hold of the horse before the other Plains Indians did, and they mercilessly wiped out other tribes. But this was sort of the way the world was. Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, he previously wrote a book called Typee, and he talks about the cannibalism on the Polynesian islands. Even Robert Louis Stevenson in his book, South Seas, writes about the cannibalism on these Polynesian islands. There was even a um, Christian from Hawaii who was a missionary to Polynesia. His name was James Kikela, and he rescued an American whaling ship sailor named Jonathan Whalen, who was captured and about to be eaten, and he traded his a boat for the guy's life. And Abraham Lincoln was told about it. And Lincoln sent a gold watch engraved to James Kekila. 
and it's on display on the little Polynesian island. And, and so we see that the idea of killing people and cannibalizing and eating them uh, was something that was spread around the world uh, in treatments. And you know, even in Africa, you have the Ashanti tribe, and they were notorious for uh, killing thousands of their own people in ritual sacrifices. And they had um, the cleansing of the grave. Uh, the uh, founder of the Boy Scouts um, had uh, been down there and uh, was one of the soldiers for the British Empire. And he wrote about the when a chief would die, they would cleanse the grave by killing thousands. And sort of like when the Pharaoh would die, they would bury people in the tomb with them. Sort of like when Genghis Khan died, they killed anybody they met along the funeral procession and then they diverted a river, buried Genghis Khan's body, and then re-diverted the river back. So nobody knows exactly where he was buried. And then they killed anybody that was a part of that. Uh, and so your life was only of worth. Um, and so the idea is, number one, that it was not some perfect, peaceful paradise before the Europeans came over. And uh, and then the second is, who discovered America? Uh, you know, the DNA tests showed that uh, the Eastern Siberian and Mongolian uh, people groups have similar DNA to the American Indians. And the uh, consensus is that the Bering Strait was either uh, a land bridge frozen or water levels were lower and people migrated across. Uh, you can see the similarities between the high cheekbones and the no beards on the men and the uh, straight black hair. And, uh, but they came across, they were in a sense, the first migrants that came over. Uh, Polynesians, they uh, have evidence of coming over in the 600s. The Vikings have evidence of coming to the New World in the uh, 900s and the 1,000 year. Uh, Leif Erikson, in his journals of voyages, uh, wrote about Vinland and this land he described sounds like uh, North America with pine trees. And they met the Indians. They called them Skraelings. And the Vikings had goats on their boats that had milk that was their source of protein while they were at sea. And they thought, well, we'll do a treaty with the Indians and give them some, some goat's milk. Well, the Indians were lactose intolerant and they all got sick. Oh, no. they, they went and killed some of the Vikings. And so that didn't work out. And the Vikings never tried again. Uh, China. Uh, and why do we bring this up? Because any one of these could have uh, come over and, and they would have spread their culture. Certainly uh, China in the 1400s, there was an emperor named Zhu Di, and he had an admiral named Zheng He, and they had treasure fleets. These were enormous boats made of um, Vietnamese mahogany, and they were, which was like steel. It was so strong. And these boats were like a football field in length. They were like a, a modern day ocean liner. And they had dirt piled on top that they would grow food while they were at sea. And and for years, they floated to Australia, to South America, up the coast, uh, all the way to uh, you know North America, and then back across. And then others went the other direction, India and Africa. And Well, while they were gone, the emperor's palace was struck by lightning. And the emperor ruled by claiming he had a mandate from heaven. And when heaven struck his, his uh, palace with lightning and destroyed it, the uh, next emperor wanted to do the opposite. And so when the ships of the treasure fleet came back, they just let him rot in the harbor. And he moved all the cities from the coast inland 30 miles. And that began China's isolation period. But if that 
palace had not been struck by lightning, they would have come back and, gee, the Chinese probably would have colonized all of the Americas and they certainly would have brought their culture. And then we uh, forget Russia. They uh, had Vitis Bering discover Alaska and they certainly brought their culture. And uh, But the sultans, there were several sultans that wanted to colonize America, but they were busy conquering Austria and Hungary and and had their wars. But, gee, wherever the Muslims conquered, they certainly wipe out previous cultures. I mean, even in, in northern India, where they were Hindu and they had hundreds of millions of gods, every family had their own god, more or less. And when Islam came in, they go, oh, another religion. Fine. The water's warm. You know, come on in. Their mind couldn't conceive of an exclusive religion. And so when the Muslims began to kill all these Hindus, they're like, well, what are you doing? And and sure enough, the, the Muslims took over northern India and wiped out their Hindu faith. And and so certainly if, if they would have been allowed to colonize America, they would have wiped out whatever cultures the Indians had. And and so the idea of targeting Europeans as somehow bad is unfair. And the uh, the natives in America, not their own fault, but they were still living essentially in the Stone Age. So here you had at a time when the Russians had fleets and cannons and steel and the Spaniards and the French and the Dutch, the Muslim sultans had navies, the Chinese and Japanese had navies and uh, all they had steel. The the Indians in America, again, no fault of their own, there was an abundance of game. So they didn't have to develop agriculture. And so they had not yet invented the wheel. They didn't have horses. They had dogs that drug things, but, you know, maybe a llama in South America, but not not anything useful to to industrialize with. And, uh, you know, we use the word horsepower because we were able to uh, harness the power of a horse. Well, there were no horses in America and, and they had not learned how to smelt uh, any type of um, iron and bronze and steel. Uh, they uh, didn't even have a written language. Uh, they couldn't accumulate knowledge the way that the Europeans could and, and pass messages. So, Bill, where, where did the uh, Native Americans ar- actually originate from? Uh, obviously, they weren't truly Native. At, at some point, they came to North America. Right. So the book uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, he uh, was asking that question and he basically, the consensus is that they came over from Siberia, that you had, you know, if you wanted to put in the, the biblical chronology, you had the, the Tower of Babel and the language is confused and people scattered and they began to go in all directions. Well, some went east and then went across, you know, Mongolia and the Siberia, northern Russia, but then the Bering Strait, they would have come across. And why is this significant? Well, what's called Eurasia which is Europe and Asia and North Africa, there were constant wars and captives and intermarrying and DNA being mixed up. And so when a disease would come through, lots of people would die, but you'd always have some that would have a different genetic makeup and they would survive. But those that first came over to America and then the sea levels changed and no more came over, they were an isolated DNA strain, more or less. And so when finally the Europeans did come over and make contact and brought diseases with them, uh, yes, the Europeans died of smallpox and things like that, but the Indians were tremendously more wiped out by those diseases and millions died. Um, And so uh, 
it's a, it, it, an interesting study, but I wanted to bring that out to give the sort of the big picture of what was going on uh, that somebody was going to conquer and colonize America. So like Hawaii, I mean, they had canoes and, and you had Russians and Portuguese and Spanish and they all had huge, powerful ships and, they, and the Hawaiians had canoes. Somebody was going to take uh, ownership of Hawaii. And um, uh, so he just, some people say, well, you know, America shouldn't have taken it. It's like, well, somebody was going to take it. Uh, if, if we well, would, I, I have to say, this is the first time that I'm hearing this. I had no idea that these, uh, uh, gigantic ships exist existed anywhere you know i like probably everyone watching uh know about the mayflower and that's that's about the the extent of the uh uh discuss, you know christopher columbus yeah you know the the spanish galleons uh i mean they were they were made for warfare uh you know like three stories high they could travel very fast uh, you know the british you know, the, the Vikings, the, the Norwegians. I mean, um, so uh, so I bring up this to, just to give a global setting of what was going on. And it sort of reveals the slanted uh, aspect of the 1619 Project, uh, the critical race theory and so forth. People say, well, slavery, it began with, you know, 1619. Uh, no, it began with kings. Where Wherever you have kings on top, you have slaves on the bottom. And so all the way back to the beginning of Nimrod, Tower of Babel and, you know, Egyptian pharaohs. And, um, you know, you always have um, Hammurabi's code, 1800 B.C. Uh, he talked about at the top is the king and then the royalty and then the military class and the merchant class and then the peasant class and then the slave class. So there's there were always slaves. And, uh, and it was considered, uh, believe it or not, it was considered nice to not kill them. Right. So you'd have battles and fighting and killing. And when the king said, you know what, I'm going to be nice. I'm not going to kill you. I just let you live as a slave. That was considered nice. Even the, the Bible has the story of Joshua going into the promised land, wiping out the tribes. The tribes were doing human sacrifice. They were doing child sacrifice. We know that because it's mentioned several times in scriptures when even Manasseh was a wicked king and he was sacrificing children to Moloch. And the prophets come to him and say, you're doing the same thing that the people that were here before you came in did. And because they were doing it, I brought Israel in to drive them out. And because you're doing it, I'm going to drive you out. So we know that. So anyway, so Joshua coming into the promised land, wiping out these tribes. Well, the Gibeonites deceive Joshua, have moldy bread. They said, we're from real far away. And he makes a treaty with them only to find out they're next door. And they say, well, we can't kill them. We made a treaty with them. So we'll just make them choppers of wood and carriers of water. So they were, in a sense, relegated to a type of slavery. But it was considered a step up from killing them. Right? So that was the attitude that was basically around the whole world. And um, uh, so so slavery didn't start with 1619. Um, by the way, those slaves, it was a Dutch ship that landed in Jamestown in 1619. They needed supplies. And so they traded some Africans in exchange for some supplies. And those Africans, after seven years, were freed, every one of them. And it was called indentured servants. And that was the, the normal concept that a poor person could get a free boat ride, but he would, in exchange, agree to work for whoever paid for his boat ride for seven years. Uh, unfortunately, uh, one of those first black slaves that came to America that was freed. His name was Anthony Johnson. 
he became the first landowner, black landowner in America. And he had a tobacco plantation in Virginia. And he had four slaves. Three were white. One was black. And after the seven years, uh, they all left. And the one black slave named John Cassor goes to work at another farm. And Anthony Johnson brings a lawsuit to get him to be brought back and made a permanent servant. And unfortunately, the Virginia government sided with him. But it's a tragic thing that one of the first permanent black slaves in America was owned by a black man. And, uh, hmm. but anyway, I'm sharing some of these stories just to, to let those know that uh, the 1619 project, uh, Howard Zinn's people's history of the United States that wants to paint everybody that came to America from Europe as bad, bad, bad. It's like, it wasn't a paradise uh, that the Europeans destroyed. They had their own violence. Um, they did live in a, more of a hunter-gatherer style of life where the rest of the world was far advanced. And so any one of those other countries could have uh, done what and colonized America. And they certainly would have used their uh, culture to displace whatever was there. And then the idea of slavery, it was not invented uh, by white Europeans. A matter of fact, Mohammed um, was one of the main, he owned Muhammad was a white Arab that owned black slaves. And there are Hadiths that said he's the white man reclining on the couch. And when he'd lift his arms to pray, they'd see the whiteness of his armpits. And, and so uh, they, Islam is responsible for enslaving an estimated 180 million blacks. And, and they're, yeah, and they're still doing it. Yeah, unfortunately. But anyway, um, I know that's sort of a, an unusual um, introduction to uh, the topic of the pilgrims, but I felt like, you know, it's an interesting thing to give the big world picture of what was going on when the pilgrims came over. And uh, and then, if you like, we can go ahead and pick up with the, the story of the pilgrims themselves. Sure. Yeah. Let's uh, take us there. Take us down the road. Well, the uh, first is the religious aspect, I'd like to point out. And all of Western Europe was Catholic. Uh, and in 1517, Martin Luther starts the Reformation. In 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria, under Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. And for those not familiar, uh, Muhammad, uh, born in 570 AD, starts his faith in 622 AD. He transitions from a religious leader to a political leader to a military leader. Muhammad himself fought in 66 battles and raids, killing an estimated 3,000 people. And so he dies in 632 AD. And the rightly guided caliphs uh, become militaristic and they conquer Egypt, which used to be Christian, evangelized by Mark. And they conquer Syria, which used to be Christian, evangelized by Paul. And they conquer Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine. They conquer what is today Turkey. But back then it was the Byzantine Christian Empire. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. And this is eight centuries before the Reformation. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. Today, that's Tunisia. And then in the year 711, 80,000 Muslims invade Spain, conquer it in 10 years because they're on Arabian horses with stirrups and scimitar swords and Europeans are still fighting on foot. And they're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 AD, just a hundred years after Muhammad's death in 632 AD. So this military co conquest going on, 
the Greek Christians beg the Catholic West for help. They send help. It's called the Crusades. When they end, the Muslims conquer Constantinople in 1453, biggest city in Europe. This cuts off the land trade routes to get from Europe to India and China. Again, the year is 1453. And so if the land routes don't work, the Europeans begin to look for sea routes. And Vasco da Gama from Portugal sails around South, South Africa, makes it to Goa, India in 1498. But Columbus, a little bit earlier, said, hey, I got an idea. Let's sail west in 1492, runs into some islands. He's convinced he's in India, so he names the people he meets the Indians. And so, uh, again, the big picture here. And so in 1529, 100,000 Muslims are surrounding Vienna, Austria. And the defender of Europe is the King of Spain, Charles V. Uh, he is the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, that term goes back to Sh uh, Charlemagne. And he was his grandfather, Charles Martel, stopped the Muslims at the Battle of Tours in France in 732 AD. And so the grandson is Charlemagne, and he's crowned by uh, the Pope. And so he has a double duty. It's to run his own country, but also help defend Europe against uh, these Islamic invasions. And so by the 1500s, the Holy Roman Emperor is the King of Spain. He's got double duty, run Spain, which was huge because it controlled all of um, uh, parts of Italy, parts of Austria, parts of the Netherlands and parts of Portugal. And, and so the, uh, the King of Spain ruled his area, but his double duty was to help protect Europe from Islamic in invasion. So the King of Spain. Again, 1517, Reformation starts, 1529, uh, Vienna is surrounded by the Turks. And the King of Spain tries to smash both. He tries to stop the Reformation, tries to stop the Islamic invasion, realizes he can't. He decides to make a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And it's significant because it's the first treaty ever to officially recognize Protestants. And in this piece of Augsburg is a little Latin phrase that had enormous repercussions, even influencing us today. What was the phrase? Cuios regio, eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So in other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom. Let's just work together against this Islamic invasion because they sort of want to kill us all. And it worked. It stopped the invasion. But in the next century, different kings believed slightly different things. And Northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist, Scotland, Presbyterian, Holland, Dutch Reformed. Greece was Greek Orthodox, Russia was Russian Orthodox, Serbia was Serbian Orthodox, and Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland, stayed Catholic. But it went from everybody in Western European Catholic to each country had its own king and its own denomination and what the king believed the kingdom had to believe. And if you didn't, it was treason. And so suddenly Europe is thrown into this mass migration, people shifting from one country to another simply for conscience sake. And those are the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. And so the pilgrim story, we have to focus on England. And uh, in, interrupt me at any time, Rob, if you have a, a question or comment. And um, so we, we focus on England. Uh, England had a King Henry VIII. And he's married to the daughter of the King of Spain, Catherine of Aragon. But after 18 years, she does not have a son. So Henry decides to divorce her. 
the Pope won't recognize the divorce because she is, after all, the daughter of the most powerful guy in the world, the King of Spain. And uh, the King of Spain's army had invaded Italy in 1527 and imprisoned the Pope for six months. So the Pope's like, I don't want to get on Spain's wrong side. So no to the divorce. Well, Henry said, well, I'm far enough away from Italy. I, I'm just going to declare myself my own Pope. He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head and goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. His advisors suggested if he's serious about breaking from Rome, he should stop using that Latin Bible. Get himself an English Bible. The German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible. That helped them to break away. He needs an English Bible. So Henry VIII says, great, get me one. Well, it just so happens that Henry had William Tyndall burnt at the stake a few years earlier for translating the Bible into English. But now William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And now it's a couple of years later, the King wants an English Bible. So they, they take Tyndall's work, polish it up, and they call it the Great Bible. Henry likes it. He orders a copy put in every church in England. It's the first time the common people of England can read the Bible in their own English language. And what year was this? Uh, this was probably around 1534. Okay. And so Henry dusts his hands and he goes, that's it. We took care of uh, breaking from Rome. But something unexpected happened. People actually began to read it and began to compare what's in this Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England, and they're nicknamed Puritans. The king doesn't think he needs any purifying. He's fine just the way he is. So he persecutes Puritans. And then there's another group that said, it's hopeless trying to purify the Anglican church. We're simply going to separate ourselves. And they would meet in secret barns and basements by candlelight. They would get arrested. They would get drugged into prison. The king passed the Five Mile Act, which says if you are caught preaching and sharing your opinions publicly, Within five miles of a town without without approval of the king, you're saying something different than the government wants. You're a criminal and they'll arrest you and they'll drag you before the star chamber. It's a room in the government building, sort of like where they keep the January 6th, uh, you know, protesters. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and they then there's another one they pass called the Conventicle Act it comes from the word covenant where two or three are gathered in my name. And a lot of them in Scotland. These are small group meetings. And the king didn't like him meeting. And so if you're having a small group meeting and you're talking religion and sharing your opinions and they're different than the government, then they want to crack down on the misinformation, right? They want to, they bust into your house and arrest everybody. And they, and, and one of the people that was arrested during this was John Bunyan. And he is yells out as they drag him away, better to be persecuted than be the persecutor. Well, he spends 12 years in prison, and that's when he writes Pilgrim's Progress, that famous uh, book. Well, the, uh, the idea was that uh, the government didn't want you to share your opinions, and it would, they, they would bust in and arrest you. Sort of like the FBI a couple of weeks ago busted in the home of a homeschool mom in Colorado Springs. Yeah, some because, things never change, do they? And handcuffed her in front of her kids while she was homeschooling them, all because she yep. shared her opinions of not liking what's being taught in the public schools. Right. And so the pilgrims experienced this. So one of the groups of pilgrims decided to sell 
everything and buy passage on a ship and sail to the Netherlands. The Netherlands were seven provinces breaking away from Spain. It took them 80 years to break away. And these provinces believed slightly different things, but they were willing to work together with each other because Spain was such a big threat. And so the Netherlands was basically the most tolerant area of all of Europe. And so the pilgrims, they buy passage on a ship, but right before the ship takes off, the captain robs them, turns them over to the police. They're thrown in jail as heretics. So another group of these pilgrim separatists sell their property and they arrange for a Dutch ship to sail up the coast and they would be waiting in little rowboats. Well, the pilgrims show up a day early and the boats rocking and the waves are really tough and the kids are getting sick and the wives say, can we just wait on shore? And so they get out and then the Dutch ship comes and the men row out. They're storing everything on the ship and someone snitched. The British soldiers come over the hill and arrest the wives and children. And the Dutch captain says, I don't have an army with me. And he pulls anchor and sails away with the men. Hmm. You can imagine those women and children standing on shore, watching that ship getting smaller and smaller until it disappears over the horizon. For two years, they pass those women and children from one court and jail and prison in England to another to another. Finally, a judge says, you really didn't do anything wrong. Go home. Well, they said, we sold our homes. So just to get them out of their hair, they put them on a boat, send them over to Holland. Somehow they find their husbands and then they're reunited. Happy ending to that chapter. They go from Amsterdam to Leiden, which was uh, a city that had fought a bloody battle to get free from Spain. And in Leiden were Jews, right? The king of Spain had chased the Jews out. A lot of them settled in Leiden. And so the pilgrims began identifying with the Jews and they said, well, you left the Pharaoh, we left the King of England. You crossed the Red Sea, we crossed the English Channel. You went to your promised land, we're looking for ours. And and, uh, and the pilgrims did have a Thanksgiving holiday uh, called Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the year. And so the thought is maybe that influenced uh, the pilgrims. And um, But they're there for 12 years, and Spain threatens to attack again. It's interesting when you read the different battles during this 80-year War of Independence from Spain. One of them, the Spanish had their army around a city and uh, the city in Holland, for those not familiar, they have windmills because they, if you ever gone out to a beach and it's really shallow, maybe for a hundred yards out, well, imagine piling a bunch of rocks up there and then dirt on top of the rocks. And then you get a windmill pump and you pump the water out and you basically reclaim that land. It takes years. And then you, you know, get rid of the salt and the soil and, and you bring in fresh dirt and then you then you do it again and again and again. And so Holland is largely under below sea level, but they have all these dikes built. Well, one of these battles, the, the Spanish surrounded a city and th- there's no way they could win. Well, they decide to break the dikes and the f- ocean water floods in and drowns the entire Spanish army anyway. But uh, that was at a different time than the pilgrims, but I wanted to just share, to give a little bit of the the setting here. So uh, the pilgrims decide after 12 years that uh, their kids are assimilating and becoming Dutch. And they realize they're just going to be a, they're going to turn into Dutch and that's going to be the end of them. And so they decide they're going to flee again. And they first think of going to Guyana, South America. They heard of the perpetual spring, nice warm weather. But then they were reminded of Florida, that in 1565, 
that you had a 300 French Protestants called Huguenots, and they tried settling around uh, what is today Jacksonville, Florida. And the Spanish found out about it and butchered the men and took the women and children away. So the pilgrims say, no, 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 we don't want to go anywhere close to Spain. They thought of going to Jamestown then. It was founded 14 years earlier. It was having all kinds of troubles with starvation time and uh, diseases and Indian attacks. But nevertheless, they thought of going there. And uh, they leave Holland. They go to England. They have two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. But the Speedwell does not speed well because the leak. And they try to fix it, leaks again. And then they scrap it and they just all consolidate and get on the Mayflower. They've eaten through time and food, and now it's winter. They're sailing in the North Atlantic. It's freezing. One uh, dot, one person dies. A baby's born. One guy's washed overboard. They fish him back, John Howland. They're confined to a tween deck, a four-foot high space, 102 of them. No privacy. I mean, it's really rudimentary. That's tossing constantly. And uh, they, uh, it's a 3,000-mile journey, 66 days. And they finally get to the shores of America, and they're 500 miles away from Jamestown. And they try sailing south, but off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. Matter of fact, 3,000 ships have sunk off the coast of Cape Cod because uh, the sand shoals go out really far. You can be a mile away from shore and get stuck on the sand, and in a storm, you can the waves can crack your, smash your boat up. So the pilgrim captain says, look, it's too dangerous. And he goes back to Plymouth Rock and he says, everyone off the boat. And they say, um, we got a question. Who's going to be in charge? We were going to go to Jamestown and be ruled by the king's government there. And there's no king appointed person on our boat. The whole world is ruled by kings and czars and sultans and emperors and maharajas. And the whole world's ruled by kings and there's no king appointed person on our boat. Who's going to be in charge? They do something unique that affected us today. They gave themselves the authority to start a government called the Mayflower Compact. It says, we, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, uh, covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic. To enact just and equal laws, it shall be thought most necessary, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power. In the womb of this little Mayflower is a, is a switch. Instead of top-down rule by kings, it's bottom-up rule by we. It's the difference between a dead pyramid and a living tree, where every root helps suck in nutrients to help keep this bottom-up form of government working. And so the, the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king, right? So the people are in charge. Now, where did the pilgrims get this idea that they could rule themselves without a king from their pastor, John Robinson. He was not a king appointed Anglican pastor. He was a congregationalist pastor. Well, the king appointed version is what's called clergy laity. The clergy is, does all the ministry and the laity is lazy and watches. The congregational model comes from the, the Greek word ecclesia or ecclesia, which means a calling out. And in Athens, they had 6,000 citizens. They'd call them out of their homes, and they'd all get together in the Agora marketplace to decide what's going to happen in the city. And so Jesus, when he said, upon this rock, I'll build my church, that word church is ecclesia. It's a calling out. It's, it's a body. And the idea is that everybody's supposed to be involved. 
and the congregational's pastor, his job is to get everybody to have their own relationship with God through Jesus and then grow up in maturity and be involved, you know, taking care of the children and the junior high and senior high and, and eventually get spiritually mature so they can start ministering. And this thing called the body of Christ can grow like yeast and multiply. And, and, um, and so they, the pilgrims basically took their congregational church model and made it their community government model. And this became a model for the other New England colonies and eventually our U.S. Constitution, which starts off, we the people. So this is different than Jamestown. Jamestown was always a king-run colony, all the way until they had the Revolutionary War and, and Patrick Henry became the first governor. Um, but prior to then, Virginia was just had royal crown governors, and they would just say, I'm ruling in the place of the king, so you got to do what I tell you. And But in New England, this congregational form of government they would have a meeting house. And the word synagogue in Hebrew is meeting house. It was in the middle of town. And that's where the priests would teach the law, but it's also where they would elect their elders. So in New England, they call these meeting houses. They would have their church service, but then they would have their town hall meeting in the meeting house. I mean, why build an entirely separate building just to talk about a different subject? And so when the, century and a half later, when the Revolutionary War starts, the British send over a military governor of Massachusetts. His name is Thomas Gage, and he outlaws town hall meetings. He said, democracy is too prevalent in America. He said, we don't need people meeting and passing resolutions. You just do what the government tells you to do, right? You don't decide what's going to go on. You, you don't have, you know, your uh, little club meetings and your different groups. No, you just do what the government says. We don't want your input. And uh, But the idea of the town hall meetings goes back to New England, goes back to these pastors. And where did those pastors get the idea? This is interesting, the Bible. But what part of the Bible? That first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt, before they got King Saul, it's called the Hebrew Republic. And it's the first instance in recorded human history of a nation with millions of people and no king, right? So it's the pre-King Saul period. And it's the book of Judges in the Bible. It, you, know, you read it, it's a little bit confusing, but it was maximum liberty for the individuals. You had, everybody had their own land. Everybody had their own weapon. They were armed. They were already at a moment's notice to defend their family and their community. Everybody was educated and could read because they had to read the law and and uh, so this was a bottom-up form of government. For 400 years, they did not have a king. There's no royal family to butter up next to. That was called the Hebrew Republic. It was studied so much in New England that they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. Hmm. To this day, Yale has Hebrew characters on its coat of arms. And and some some of the years, they actually gave their, their commencement address in Hebrew. I mean, it was like they were really into this. And, but it, the Hebrew Republic, that first 400-year period, uh, the, they were, the scholars were called Christian Hebraists. Some of them became such experts in the Jerusalem Talmud and uh, the Mishnah and Mamanides, who was a famous rabbi, and that, that later rabbis would quote from these Puritan uh, Christian Hebraists. But they were studying, they, they were thrilled not just to study the Bible in their own language, but they were thrilled to study this part of the Bible 
that first 400 year period when you had millions of people and, and no king and it worked and it worked because everybody, everybody was taught the law and everybody was individually accountable to God to follow the law. And so that's why. Uh, so why do you, why do you keep the law? Well, God is watching. He wants you to be fair. He's going to hold you accountable later. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. And then you think God's watching. He wants me to be fair. It's going to hold me accountable later. Uh, maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called the conscience. If everybody in the country really believes this, you can maintain complete order with with the police and and maximum liberty and safety and security. But when you get rid of this consciousness of God and you get rid of the teaching of the law, all you have is raw human passion and it turns into chaos. And when the chaos gets bad enough, everybody says, we want somebody to come in and restore order. And that's when you get a dictator takes over. Now, the one part that I think is, is interesting to throw in is socialism. So the pilgrims did not have money. So they went to investors in England to borrow money. And they had the London company. So there were no companies in the Middle Ages. It was uh, a sin of usury to pay or receive interest. And uh, the first major company uh, was the uh, company of uh, merchant adventurers. And they were going to sail north of Russia to get to China. And their, boat got, their boats got frozen in the ice. The couple made it to Moscow. So they changed the company to the Muscovy Company, but it never really made much money. But then the, the Dutch started the Dutch East India Company, most successful, prosperous company of all of them. And um, they came up with this idea that individual people could invest in a boat going to Indonesia. When it came back filled full of nutmeg, you'd get paid a profit. And if you wanted to sell your interest in the boat, you would go down to the Amsterdam Stock Exchange and sell it. And if the boat sunk, well, the the Dutch invented insurance companies. And so the company concept was then the British had the British East India Company and then the Virginia Company. But then the Pilgrims were the London Company. And so these investors put up the money and they made the Pilgrim representatives sign the bylaws. And the bylaw said everything would be owned in common. Everything gained by cooking, hunting, fishing, trading shall go into ye common stock. And everyone's livelihood shall come out of ye common stock. And William Bradford said they tried it for a couple of years and almost starved to death. Hmm. He said the, the young man objected to having to do twice as much work as the old guy, but got paid the same. He says the old guy objected to being classed in labor with the younger and humbler ones and considered it an indignity. And the women objected to having to wash other men's clothes. And nobody wanted to plant. And so William Bradford said, we had to come up with a, a fitter plan. And so he said, after much discussion, it was decided that every family would get their own parcel of land. This made all hands more industrious. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and to have forced them would have been considered great oppression. Right. So they, they tried the common ownership thing. It didn't work. Uh, and then they gave everybody their own plot of land. People say, well, wasn't wasn't the early church socialist? No, the early church was the early church. Socialism is counterfeit early church. And the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. So the early believers voluntarily sold their property and voluntarily laid it at the feet of the apostles to distribute. They didn't have their land taken away and they were forced to put the money at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government to redistribute. And when and the children of Israel going to the promised land, every family is given land. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. And then you can be moved upon it. And the Bible called that being blessed. 
And then you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some of your stuff. And the Bible called that charity. So if you, Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? How can you give away something that you don't have? What are you going to steal from somebody else? Now you're a thief. No, God entrusts you with stuff so that you can manifest in the material, physical world what spiritually is inside of your heart. And so the pilgrims switch from company to covenant. They switch from an involuntary bylaws that your stuff is taken away and redistributed to a voluntary, you get your own parcel of land, you're blessed, and then we're trusting that you'll be moved upon in your heart to help out your neighbor that's in need. And so that's the the change that took place there in New England. And um, anyway, I just think it's, it's a fascinating study. I, I sort of missed the whole squanto, but uh, it's a fascinating <laughs> story. Um, uh, the other was they had to pay back the investors in England with beaver skins. Virginia, they used tobacco, but the pilgrims had beaver skins. And in 1625, one of their ships that had 800 pounds of beaver skins that they sent back to England was captured by a Turkish man of war in the English Channel and taken to Morocco, and everyone was sold into slavery. Hmm. So in 1625, the the uh, Barbary pirates con- captured over a thousand people from England. They even captured an entire Irish village called the Stolen Village of Baltimore, Ireland. They came up at nighttime, rounded up the whole town, put them on ships, took them to Morocco, never seen again, right? except a couple of them were rescued. And um, and so the so the pilgrims had to deal with that. Another interesting little tidbit is um, that Massasoit was the Indian chief and he was ill. And one of the pilgrims named Edward Winslow doctors up the Indian chief and he gets better. And the fine print was if you're doctoring a chief and the chief dies, you die. (laughs) So it's a little bit more serious about, Oh, I'm going to try my hand at medical care. And, um, but that, helped establish a 50-year peace between the pilgrims and the uh, Native Americans. And um, uh, but, so what um, was the uh, what was the relationship like between the pilgrims and the uh, the Native Americans? Yeah, it was great. Uh, those that don't like the pilgrims are confusing what the Spanish did uh, or in Virginia where uh, they did have guns and had some you know some shootouts and stuff. But the pilgrims, no. Uh, the, the pilgrims had a, this 50-year peace. Uh, it is worth noting the Squanto story. So pilgrims were religiously motivated, but others weren't. And Spain had a monopoly on the New World for a century. And they had silver from Potosi Silver Mine, this big mountain in Peru. And then they had gold from Latin South America. And they would take it to Panama, put it on ships to Cuba, put it on ships to Spain. And the French Dutch... English had pirates. Francis Drake, the king of Spain, called him El Drake because he was such a terrible pilot, pirate. And then the French had a pirate named Jean Leclerc, and he was nicknamed Pegleg because he had his leg blown off, but he still kept fighting with his peg leg. And, and he had an entire navy of pirate ships that went around the Caribbean, and they would rob the Spanish ships. So these were not really moral people. Well, some of them would sail along the coast of North America. There wasn't gold, but they'd sometimes stop and lure some unsuspecting natives on their boat and then show them below deck and then lock the door and then sail to Malaga, Spain and sell them into slavery. Hmm. And this is what happened to Squanto. And the report 
there in Spain was that um, Muslims had controlled Spain for 700 years and they enslaved over a million Europeans. And there were entire Catholic orders in Europe called the Trinitarians, and they would collect alms and donations to ransom back your friend that was captured in the Muslim slave trade. Well, when some of these Catholic orders had just heard the news that some Native Americans were going to be sold, they made such a ruckus that they were not sold. They were given custody to this um, these monks. And then after a while, they took care of them and they gave them their freedom. And here's Squanto hitchhiking his way across Europe, makes his way to London, works there for years, learns the English language. And then he finds some Newfoundland company uh, that is doing fishing and trading. And he uh, is their interpreter and he goes to Newfoundland. And then he finds another company that's going to Massachusetts. And so he hitches a ride. He gets off only to find his entire tribe is dead. Hmm. A plague had wiped the whole tribe out. Now, as tragic as it was, had he not been kidnapped, he most certainly would have died in the plague. And William Bradford in the history of the Plymouth Settlement said, a couple years earlier, a French ship was shipwrecked off Cape Cod. Sailors got ashore. Indians never left watching them and dogging them till they got the advantage. Killed them all but three or four of them. They sent from one sachem chief to another, making sport with them, using them worse than slaves. And so one of them must have had an illness. The Indians caught it, wiped out the tribe so bad that the other tribes refused to even go onto that land. And so in a sense, the pilgrims landed at this one spot that was not presently claimed by any other tribe. And half the pilgrims died the first winter, and they probably would not have survived. But uh, Squanto was living with the neighboring tribe. And you can just imagine the scene. Somebody goes into his teepee. Hey, Squant, there's some English people wanting to start a settlement on your old stomping ground. And coming out of the woods with his loincloth, he goes up to the pilgrims. He goes, oh, you guys from London? Yeah, I used to live there. <laughs> oh, yeah, St. Paul's Chapel, the pub on Ward Street. Oh, yeah, okay, I know that neighborhood. And then he goes over here. Well, I grew up over here. I know this place like the back of my hand, over the hills of spring. He teaches them how to take off their shoes, go down to the riverbank and squeegee in the mud and catch eels and clams. And then he teaches them how to catch fish. They said, we tried that. He goes, no, these are things called salmon. This, they spawn. This river is going to be packed. And then they said, you know, we don't know how to plant corn. And so he said, well, you put a kernel down with a fish on top, keep the wolves away for two weeks. The fish decomposes and you get yourself a nice fertile soil and a stalk of corn. And then put the corn in a pot, shake it over a fire and make popcorn. And then beaver. William Bradford says, neither was there a man among them who had ever seen a beaver skin until instructed by Squanto. But most importantly, he was their interpreter. So he put him on good terms with the Indian tribes. And uh, he was able to get Chief Massasoit to show up. And uh, they had their first Thanksgiving. Ninety Indians came. And they brought their deer and their turkey. And the pilgrims had their puddings and cranberry. And they gave thanks to God. And it was uh, at the end of the day, the Indians roll up in their animal skin blankets and go to sleep on the ground. And they wake up the next day and there's a Thanksgiving goes on. And then it happens the third day. And um, so it's just a, a fascinating story that, that we look back to as the origins of our government, of people being in charge of their lives. Now, I want to throw in one last thing. Squanto, when he is... Um, a couple years later, they're exploring around the coast and a freezing rain comes down. William Bradford says they couldn't get in because of the waves. So they put in at a little island 
they're drenched, they're freezing and shivering. And he says, here Squanto fell ill of Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take for a symptom of death. He bequeathed several of his belongings to his English friends. And then he begged Governor Bradford to pray for him that he would go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Well, the Englishmen were the pilgrims and he lived with them and they were real sincere pilgrims. And he said, I want to go to your God, right? I, I believe Governor Bradford uh, prayed a prayer of salvation with, uh, with Swanto. But fascinating story. And it's all in a book uh, I put together. It's called The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. And uh, it's on Amazon, but it's also on our website, AmericanMinute.com. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, that was that was quite the lesson, and it's amazing how God works all of those things together for good, even over uh, eons and centuries, uh, doesn't he? Yeah. So. Well, thank you for having me on, Rob. I appreciate the opportunity. I would like to just uh, close out uh, today. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. First of all, does anyone out there have any questions or comments? Anyone in our audience like to uh, make a comment? I know that was a lot to take in. That was quite a history story, his, history lesson for us. It's interesting how the uh, mind control, you know, taking away autonomy, you know, and we lose everything. It's, you know, it's history repeats itself. Solomon had it right. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. And yep, we're just living yep. back through it again. Yep, yep, it's coming back. It's coming back. But. Yep, I, I say, um, I like to say uh, human nature repeats itself, and history is the record of that. But each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse. Because with military advancements, the bad people can kill more people, yeah. right? The kings. So instead of king killing able with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a phalanx spear or a scimitar sword or gunpowder or drones, right? And if any of these kings had not died, any one of them would have been happy to rule the world. So in a sense, death is a blessing because the, the devil has to start from scratch again. And, and all these kingdoms were ruled through fear. And But clearly there's a global goal in mind. And, mm -hmm. um, but the the same way that you have um, wicked people, you got good people. It's sort of like the, the more or less spiritual descendants of, of Cain always try to kill the spiritual descendants of Abel, so to speak. Right, uh, but right. Jesus says the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. And... Um, so it's always good to be on the Lord's side. So what's so insidious about it is people don't even know they're in a war today. They just line up and fall prey to the, to the people that are trying to control us. Well, yeah. Harry, Harry, that's, that's from lack of knowledge, isn't it? Yes, well, that, it that's is. actually called, that's actually called fifth generation warfare. So uh, Sun Tzu was the Chinese military philosopher, and he was the fifth century BC. He said, Supreme excellence in a commander is to get your enemy to surrender without a fight. Well, fifth generation warfare is you get your enemy to surrender without them even being aware that they're in a war. And so it's called psychological warfare. And you get your goal is to demoralize people, get them into fear. Uh, so they'll panic and they'll want to trade freedom for security. Uh, but and they and they want to so so it's a it's a coordinated effort to get you depressed, to get you discouraged. But it's interesting, the Bible, every chapter, every book in the Bible says, fear not. And 365 times over and over again. So so the, the devil wants to get you into fear and God wants to get you into faith. And so that's sort of the, 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 the big picture uh, type of struggle. Amen, Bill. 
Uh, Before we run out, I have five verses I'm going to read you. This is Psalm 100. Uh, Thinking about Thanksgiving time. Excuse me. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Thank you, folks, uh, for joining us today. We are out of time, and we'll be back next week. Uh, Dr. Mike will be with you next week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we have uh, Oliver North coming up very shortly. So we'll see you next time. God bless. 